0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. One of my favorite moments in any movie or show or even true story is the pep talk. I love the pep talk. I love whenever I watch a movie and there's some moment, usually when the protagonist is down and out, right, they find some sort of insurmountable obstacle, some sort of challenge, they're going to lose the game, The enemy's gonna defeat them, they can't overcome, and then there's that one person that seems to step in and have the right words in the right time with the right soundtrack that just changes everything. Right? I'm I'm like one of those emotional guys. So when the pep talk comes, like I'm in tears, I'm ready to storm the field, I'm ready to do whatever's necessary. Like it's just the crescendo moment for me is I love pep talks. I love the moment when we're down and out in the right words, spur on the person to overcome their challenge and achieve victory. I bet if we took a few moments this morning, you could think of your favorite taglines from some of your favorite pep talks. They might be movies, they might be true, right? Classic lines like, win one for the Gipper. I'm not even sure who the Gipper is, but let's win one for him, right? They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. That one still gets me. We we all have those kind of moments where we just need a good pep talk. Apparently, my Ohio State Buckeyes needed a better pep talk yesterday from Ryan Day at halftime. So, kudos to Jim Harbaugh for saying what was necessary. But pep talks are incredibly motivating. The right words at the right time in the right season can shift things in our lives. And today, I think we're going to encounter one of the great pep talks of all time in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, prior to our passage, we're going to be in verses 31 through 39 this morning, prior to this passage has been dealing with the reality of suffering in the life of the Christian. He's been encouraging the church in Rome to recognize that we face suffering. That creation groans under the pain and agony of a world laden with sin. That we ourselves groan in the suffering that we experience. But Paul's been encouraging and seeking to remind the church that God is faithful, faithful to see us through suffering. Last week, Paul's kind of dealing with suffering crescendoed in one of the great verses of Scripture, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But I can almost imagine, as Paul deals with the reality of suffering and builds to that, I can almost imagine that Paul's first readers were like, yeah, Paul, that sounds really nice, but but do you really understand what we're facing here? Like, do, do you really get it? Okay, God works all things together for good. I guess I believe that, but it's really hard when the doctor gives me that diagnosis. It's really hard to believe that that's God's plan when I lose my job. It's really hard to believe that God works all things together when I just can't seem to catch a break and it feels like the world's stacked against me and another bill comes. Or I lose someone I love. Like I can almost imagine that as Paul writes Romans 8, to a struggling church that there's a part of them that really wonders, does he really? This is kind of how I imagine Romans 8, so bear with me for a moment. I imagine Romans 8 a little bit like a team that's in the locker room at halftime who's just getting the snot kicked out of them. Right, like they've been battling, but they're just losing the game. And they come into the locker room, they're bruised, they're banged up, they're getting beat all over the field, they can't seem to catch a break, seems like everyone's against them, and they limp into the locker room at halftime to lick their wounds and to regather themselves. And they sit down with their heads hanging low, and they're tired and weary, and then the coach walks in and says, hey guys, this is a rough one, but don't worry, we got this. We're going to win this game. And I imagine that it's a team that's like, come on coach, like you're a little too optimistic here. But like sometimes I think we think like Paul's writing some nice platitudes some some sort of spiritual theologians. Like Paul's writing to a church that's getting the snot kicked out of it. It's in one of the most persecuted environments in the world. It's at, it's at the heart of the empire of Rome. Not only that, it's divided and facing all sorts of challenges. They're weary, they're beaten, they're struggling, they're divided, they're persecuted, and Paul walks in and says, guys, God works all things together for good. And I imagine when they hear that, they go, "Huh." Oh. And Paul, like any good coach, takes a moment, steps back, clears his throat, looks his team straight in the eyes and says, I've got a few things to remind you of, and Paul's going to remind us today of a few things to encourage us in our own battles. Paul centers this pep talk around a series of questions that we're going to unpack together this morning. You see the first one come right away in Romans, or in verse 31. Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? We see Paul concluding kind of his argument and thought. And when Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? He's using that phrase not to just look back at the few verses that he's looked at before. He's actually reaching back all the way to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The verses, that we're going to study together this morning, parallel that passage. And so what Paul is asking when he says, what shall we say these things, is he's trying to draw his reader's attention back to the argument that he's been making over the last three chapters. He's, he's trying to get us, we've been in Romans 5 through 8 since September, to look back over those weeks and say, guys, remember these things of what I've been telling you. He wants us to look back so that he can begin to unpack some key truths and realities for us. And he wants to encourage them. I I almost imagine this moment where where Paul kind of brings attention to what he's been saying as Paul's kind of encouragement in the midst of a dark season. One of my favorite moments in the, uh, The Hobbit, both in the book and the... Uh, movie is when uh, Bilbo and the dwarves are lost. If you ever seen it? They're lost in a dark forest and, and they can't figure out where to go and they're wandering in circles and they're tired and they're frustrated. And there's this moment where Bilbo decides to climb the trees and he gets to the top. And when he gets to the top, he can look out and see over the forest and he sees the lonely mountain and he sees the way they need to head and the sunlight hits his face and it's warm and kind of euphoric and it's this kind of high moment. I kind of feel like that's a little bit of what Paul's trying to do here. He's, tr- he's trying to bring a struggling church, into the kind of high point and say, hey, hey, don't forget, you might feel lost, but don't forget what's true. And as the kind of sunlight hits Bilbo's face, I think Paul wants to bring some sunlight to our weary faces as well and say, hey, here's what I've been trying to tell you. And he, he actually gives us what he's been trying to tell us in response to the question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And here's Paul's entire summary of what he's been saying for the last three chapters. If God is for us. Paul doesn't say that like maybe God is for us. No, he's saying that as like this is true. God, God, in fact, is for us. If you were to summarize what Paul's been trying to teach and instruct the Roman church in the last three chapters, it's simply that, that God is for you, that he's for his people. Be reminded, Paul says as he looks back, that God is for you because he justified you freely, Romans 5 1 through 11. Be reminded that God is for you because he has replaced. Adam and our condemnation with Jesus as our spiritual representative in Romans 5, 12. God is for you because he's made you dead to sin and alive to Christ, the first half of Romans 6 says. God is for you because he has freed from you from sin and made you a servant of righteousness, the second half of Romans 6 says. God is for you because he has wed you to himself, Romans 7. God is for you because he has done what the law could not do for you, God is for you because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Romans 8:1 God is for you because the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is in you God is for you because he has made you an heir with Christ God is for you because he has prepared an eternal glory for you that outweighs your suffering God is for you because he will finish his work in you and God is for you because he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose what Paul's been trying to summarize for three chapters is to say, God, God is for you. He's on your side. And because that's true, he then asked this first key question in our text this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul assumes that question, that if God is for us, then no one, no one in fact can be against us. That there is nothing that can stop God's forness for you. You see the truth that Paul's been reminding us through this that if God is for us, then even what stands against us, God will use for our good. That's an incredible truth. Because the reality is that because of what God has done in Jesus, even what is most opposed to you, even the worst things that you experience, God, because he's for you, will use those for his purposes, for his glory, and ultimately for your good. John Chrysostom, a famous preacher in the church, historically says this about this verse. He says, Yet those that be against us So far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings, in that God's wisdom turns their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. Think about that. Even the worst things that you face in your life, if God is for you, means God will take those things and use them as blessings even your enemies. God works good ultimately through every hardship you face, every challenge, everything that seems, stand, that seems to stand against you won't because God is for you. And how do we know that? Well, Paul says because of Jesus. Look what he says next. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's essential argument is, if God in Jesus could even take what was wrong, even the death of his own son, and use it for his eternal purposes... Can he not do that in your life as well? And if God would give you Jesus, can we not trust that even though it might be hard, he will give you every blessing. He will give you what is necessary. He will bring you eternally home. Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser here. He's trying to say, if God would do this for you in Christ, certainly he will finish what he has started. Think of it maybe this way. Um, how many of you parents have ever bought your, pres- your kid a gift and then you forgot to buy the batteries, right? Like, you, you know, like you, you bought some nice present for Christmas or their birthday or whatever that's just what they wanted. You went out, you spent more money than you wanted to, but you wanted to make your kid happy. You bought that present, you get it, you bring it. They open it up and then you read that little small, tiny print on the top that says, batteries not included. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, right, but but sometimes kids have the tendency, well, this toy's worthless then. Like, it doesn't even work. And you're like, hold up, if I just spent 75 bucks on this present, don't you think I'm going to go buy $4 worth of batteries? Calm down. Like, I'm not going to invest in something to bless you with and then not complete the job. Yet, how many of us have a little bit of that response to God? Well, God, I've been following you my whole life. You're going to let me go through this? How how can you let this happen to someone good like that? And I think sometimes God looks at us and he's like, "Uh, I gave you my son. He died on the cross. You don't think I got a plan here? You don't think I got a purpose? No, God's a good father. He's going to give you the batteries. He's going to give you more than the batteries. He's going to give you what you need. And that's Paul's whole argument. If God's for us, no one's going to stand against you. Nothing's going to stop. God's not going to bring you to this point and then just leave you and say, oh, here you go, hope you can figure it out. No, he's going to bring to completion the salvation he's working in us. He's going to provide everything that we need. If he gave us Jesus, we can certainly trust he will finish the work that he's going to do in our lives to bring us into his eternal kingdom. Friends, you can trust God in the midst of your battle and you don't have to look any farther than what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we can have hope in all the glory that is to come and God will provide for us. Paul then brings his second question in verse 33. He turns from that and says, if God is for us, then he goes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Paul now turns to the issue of the potential legal charges against us. Remember, Paul unpacked all the way back in Romans chapter 2 that God is a righteous judge and God will bring his judgment on the earth one day. He will judge sin and remove it from the earth so that he can bring his new creation to bear and remove sin and death entirely from it. But Paul now brings that to mind to remind us that that is not something that we ultimately have to fear. He says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Again, the assumed rhetorical question is no one, no one. No one's going to stop what God has for his people. And again, Paul uses this love language of election, that God has elected his people, that God has chosen us. He's made us his own. And Caleb did a great job yesterday. How do we know that we're a part of God's elect if we believe in Jesus? If God has chosen Jesus, then certainly he has chosen us in him. And we can trust that in Christ, God will bring to completion his plan for his people. And Paul says, you don't have to fear judgment. Because God is the one ultimately who justifies. And not only that, it's Christ who ultimately is fair to bring condemnation, but he's not going to condemn you. Paul reminds us that the judgment has already been declared. Several years ago, I was having dinner with uh, a friend of my wife's, and she was telling me uh, the story of how she uh, got busted for driving with a suspended license. And because of that, she uh, had to go appear before the judge at court to defend herself on why she was... Uh, driving with a suspended license, and as she was telling us the story, she kind of had this moment where she was sharing with us, and she said, you know, when I went to go to that courtroom, when the day came and the time came for me to stand before the judge, she said, I only had one concern in my mind, and it was, what does the judge think? You see, she recognized that the entire power of her punishment, whether it was lenient, whether it wasn't, whether the fine was high or not, rested in this judge and his determination. One day, all of us are going to have to stand before the judge of the universe, and what should concern our minds is what that judge will determine in that moment. But the good news of the gospel that Paul reminds us here is that we can already know the verdict ahead of time. Who's going to bring a charge against you? If the judge declares you justified, and the judge has done everything necessary for you to be justified, which is what Paul's been unpacking for the last three chapters, that in Christ, God took the punishment for our sin. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The punishment for our sin is physical and spiritual death separated from God forever. But praise God that he provided us a gift in sending his son to die, to take the death that we deserve. And he gives us the free gift of righteousness that you and I can be declared just by the judge of the universe. That we can know that verdict now by faith in Christ Jesus. And I love what Paul says here. Who's going to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus? Jesus? And then I love the way for it. Is it Christ that's going to condemn? You mean the one who died? More than that, the one who was raised? More than that, the one who is at the right hand of God? More than that, the one who's interceding for you? You think he's going to be the one to bring condemnation against you if you are in him? No, no, if he's done all that on your behalf, then you can step back and rest assured that Romans 8, one is true, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ because he's done everything for you that you could not do for yourself. So who can bring a charge? Who can condemn us in Christ? No one. So if you're in Jesus this morning, man, there's times where you feel that condemnation. You feel the enemy whisper in your ear, God doesn't really love you. If people really knew what you did, you really think God's going to be okay with that? And Paul says, yes, because God has declared you justified. He has done what is necessary. And we have to look no farther than Christ Jesus to recognize we, in fact, have been declared condemnation-free. No one can bring a charge. So when those whispers come, look to Christ. Be reminded of what he has done. And then Paul asks his final question that he unpacks in the last few verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul recognizes that there's moments in our life where we face incredible obstacles. I mean, these are the big ones, right? Persecution, famine, distress, tribulation. And he knows the tension that creates within us. In fact, he quotes here from Psalm 44. And if you go back and read Psalm 44, you will see the psalmist wrestling with the tension that we, in fact, are God's people. But yet, it feels like we're lambs just out here to be killed. It feels like you've turned your back on us, God. It feels like you've given up. We recognize the feelings that we have when we face challenges in our life. Paul knows that. He knows we feel that question. Does God really love me? Is he really for me? Or does this show that maybe God has cut us off? And so Paul responds to that feeling with one of the great truths in verse 30. He says, no. And the word actually that is translated no here also carries the idea of but. It's a contrast with what Paul is saying previously. No, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. All what things, Paul? When all the things he just listed, in the persecution that we face, in the trouble that comes, in the suffering that we endure, in the challenges of life, Paul says in all those things, because of Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. I love that phrase, more than conquerors. In the original word, it's the idea of conquer with the prefix of what we would translate as hyper or super. Paul's saying, no, in all these things, we're super conquerors. We're hyper conquerors. Like we're above conquering. Like we completely demolish these things and we achieve victory. Paul wants to remind us to you and me that no one and nothing can separate us from God's love that we will, in fact, experience God's victory in Christ Jesus. Not through us. Not through what we've done. No, Paul's clear on that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because of God's love, we conquer even what comes against us. And it's not that we conquer, it's that God conquers for us. We can trust that we will win the game because of what God has done. One of my favorite stories I have from from a friend, he decided he wanted to read through the book of Revelation, and so he went out one day, and he decided to just sit on his back patio and read through the whole book, which is a little bit of a challenge if you ever do it. Um, But he tells a story about how he was sitting on his back patio, he's reading through the book of Revelation, and he got to the end, and he just started weeping and crying, And his wife came down and said, hey, what's wrong? And he said, I read to the end of the story, and you know what? We win. We win. God's plan does not get stopped. That no enemy cuts us off. That we get to experience the eternal kingdom that is promised to us. And what Paul wants to say is, man, there's not anything that's going to separate you from God's love. In fact, he wants to make that clear. Look what he says in verse 38. For I am sure, I'm confident, I know that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's like, just to be sure, just so I can drive the point home, let's look at everything. Let's look at the natural, life and death, that can't stop him. Let's look at the supernatural, angels and rulers, that can't stop him. Let's look at the temporal, time can't stop God's love. The elements can't stop God's love. Let's look at dimensions, height and depth. No, nothing in all of creation, in all the known universe, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul wants you to have confidence that God loves you. I imagine it this way. I read this from another pastor. I thought it was a great illustration of of what Paul's doing here. Uh, Imagine you you walk into your kid's bedroom at night and they tell you, I I can't go to sleep. I'm I'm scared of the boogeyman. And You're like, okay. You're like, well, what are you scared of? I I think he's hiding somewhere. and I, I just can't go to sleep. And you're like, okay, well, What do you do in that moment, right? Well, you walk over to the closet, and you open the closet, and you turn the light on, and you go, look, there's nothing in here, nothing to be scared of here. Or maybe you take your kid, and you pull him out, and you crouch down, and you look under the bed, and you go, look, nothing, there's nothing here to be scared of. Or maybe you take him down into that dark corner of your basement where you store stuff that you only go once a year, and you're like, look, nothing, there's nobody down here. And you take me say, listen. Not only that, there's no one here. Like I got you covered. I'm stronger than the boogeyman. Right? That's like what Paul wants to do here. He's like, listen. I know it. I know things are hard right now, but but let's look over here. Do you think death can stop God's plan? Sure didn't he just stop Jesus? You think supernatural enemies and demons can stop God's plan? No, they they bow to His name. You think time can stop God's plan? Well, I think he's above that. You think the physical world can keep you from God's love? No. Paul's like, look around, look around. There's nothing here, nothing, no spiritual element, no physical element, nothing that you will experience that could ever keep you from God's love in Christ Jesus. So we can have confidence, we can rest, we can go to sleep. Because God is for us. He's done what is necessary. And what Paul wants to remind us through all of this is that, friends, we conquer by the God who loves us. I don't know what challenge you're facing. I don't know what hardship you're going through or will go through. But what Paul wants to remind you of is you don't have to fear because God's already overcome everything and nothing can separate you from him and his love. So hold fast to that truth. The reason we can be confident that we, as we face our battles that we will come out on top is because God has clearly and definitively showed his love for us in Jesus Christ. I love what Nate said earlier. All the way back to Romans 5.8. When we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And if God would give us Jesus, won't He give us everything? And so we can have confidence in our battles. We can stand firm. We can overcome whatever challenge you're facing, whatever obstacle you face, you can overcome and endure through Christ. And I think what Paul wants to give us here is a good pep talk to say, hold fast. Stand strong. God is for you. So this morning I thought maybe we'd end this passage with just a good little pep talk. I thought maybe it'd be good for us to just have one of those moments, huddle up the team in the locker room, and let the word of God speak to our hearts this morning to encourage us in the battles that we face and what we come against. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to stand up with me. And we're going to read through this passage together. And I have some responses that I want you to respond with. But here's the deal, okay? If we're going to do this, we got to do it right. So when you respond, you can't respond with like a nice, polite golf clap. Right? You can't just give me the token like, oh, mumble under your breath. No, we're, we're going we're to shout out God's truth today. We're going to speak to our own hearts. Or maybe you're not in that battle this morning, but the person might, next to you might be. They might need that truth to resonate deep in their hearts. So I just want a minute for a minute as the church to just let go, to be loud, and to shout God's truth let it encourage us. Yesterday, I sat with 100,000 Michigan fans, screaming their lungs out, and they brought the energy. Kudos. That's for a football game. And I'm not trying to rain on your guys' parade, but if we can't get excited about what God's done for us in Jesus, if we can't for a moment in church just yell God's truth and declare it to one another, when we're talking about eternity and what God has done for us, It's going to be okay to yell in church for a moment, all right? I'm going to lead us, and we're going to get after it. We're going to let the truth of God speak to our hearts this morning. So you ready? You with me? All right, here we go. I'm going to read what's in white. You're going to respond with what's in yellow. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. So who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall danger, shall sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.